Section 16 of The Lost Stradivarius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. The Lost Stradivarius by John Mead Faulkner. Mr. Gaskell's Note. I have read what Miss Maltruffers has written, and have but little to add to it. I can give no explanation that will tally with all the facts or meet all the difficulties involved in her narrative. The most obvious solution of some points would be, of course, to suppose that Sir John Maltravers was insane, but to anyone who knew him as intimately as I did such an hypothesis is untenable, nor, if admitted, would it explain some of the strangest incidents. Moreover, it was strongly negatived by Dr. Frobisher, from whose verdict in such matters there was at the time no appeal, by Dr. Doby and by Dr. Bruton, who had known Sir John from his infancy. It is possible that towards the close of his life he suffered occasionally from hallucination, though I could not positively affirm even so much, but this was only when his health had been completely undermined by causes which are very difficult to analyze. When I first knew him at Oxford he was a strong man physically, as well as mentally, open-hearted, and of a merry and genial temperament. At the same time he was, like most cultured persons, and especially musicians, highly strung and excitable. But at a certain point in his career his very nature seemed to change. He became reserved, secretive, and saturnine. On this moral metamorphosis followed an equally startling physical change. His robust health began to fail him, and although there was no definite malady which doctors could combat, he went gradually from bad to worse until the end came. The commencement of this extraordinary change coincided, I believe, almost exactly with his discovery of the Stradivarius violin, and whether this was, after all, a mere coincidence or something more, it is not easy to say. Until a very short time before his death, neither miss maltravers nor i had any idea how that instrument had come into his possession or i think something might perhaps have been done to save him though towards the end of his life he spoke freely to his sister of the finding of the violin he only told her half the story for he concealed from her entirely that there was anything else in the hidden cupboard at oxford but as a matter of fact he had found there also two manuscript books containing an elaborate diary of some years of a man's life. That man was Adrian Temple, and I believe that in the perusal of this diary must be sought the origin of John Maltravers' ruin. The manuscript was beautifully written in a clear but cramped eighteenth-century hand, and gave the idea of a man writing with deliberation and wishing to transcribe his impressions with accuracy for further reference. The style was excellent, and the minute details given were often of high antiquarian interest, but the record throughout was marred by gross license. Adrian Temple's life had undoubtedly so definite an influence on Sir John's that a brief outline of it, as gathered from his diaries, is necessary for the understanding of what followed. Temple went up to Oxford in 1737. He was seventeen years old, without parents, brothers, or sisters, and he possessed the Royston estates in Derbyshire, which were then, as now, a most valuable property. 
With the year 1738 his diaries begin, and though then little more than a boy, he had tasted every illicit pleasure that Oxford had to offer. His temptations were no doubt great, for besides being wealthy he was handsome, and had probably never known any proper control, as both his parents had died when he was still very young. But in spite of other failings he was a brilliant scholar, and on taking his degree was made at once a fellow of St. John's. He took up his abode in that college, in a fine set of rooms looking on to the gardens, and from this period seems to have used Royston but little, living always either at Oxford or on the continent. He formed at this time the acquaintance of one Jocelyn, whom he engaged as companion and amanuensis. Jocelyn was a man of talent, but of irregular life, and was no doubt an accomplice in many of Temple's excesses. In 1743 they both undertook the so-called Grand Tour, and though it was not his first visit, it was then probably that Temple first felt the fascination of pagan Italy, a fascination which increased with every year of his after-life. On his return from foreign travel he found himself among the stirring events of 1745. He was an ardent supporter of the pretender, and made no attempt to conceal his views. Jacobite tendencies were indeed generally prevalent in the college at the time, and had this been the sum of his offending, it is probable that little notice would have been taken by the college authorities. But his notoriously wild life told against the young man, and certain dark suspicions were not easily passed over. After the fiasco of the rebellion, Dr. Holmes, then president of the college, seems to have made a scapegoat of Temple. He was deprived of his fellowship and though not formally expelled, such pressure was put upon him as resulted in his leaving St. John's and removing to Magdalen Hall. There his great wealth evidently secured him consideration, and he was given the best rooms in the hall, that very set looking on to New College Lane, which Sir John Maltravers afterwards occupied. In the first half of the eighteenth century the romance of the Middle Ages, though dying, was not dead, and the occult sciences still found followers among the Oxford Towers. From his early years Temple's mind seems to have been set strongly towards mysticism of all kinds, and he and Jocelyn were versed in the jargon of the alchemist and astrologer, and practiced according to the ancient rules. It was his reputation as a necromancer, and the stories current of illicit rites performed in the garden-rooms at St. John's, that contributed largely to his being dismissed from that college. He had also become acquainted with Francis Dashwood, the notorious Lord Le Despenser, and many a winter's night saw him riding through the misty Thames meadows to the door of the sham Franciscan Abbey. In his diaries were more notices than one of the Franciscans, and the nameless orgies of Medmenham. He was devoted to music. It was a rare enough accomplishment then, and a rarer thing still to find a wealthy landowner performing on the violin. Yet so he did, though he kept his passion very much to himself, as fiddling was thought lightly of in those days. His musical skill was altogether exceptional, and he was the first possessor of the Stradivarius violin which afterwards fell so unfortunately into Sir John's hands. This violin Temple bought in the autumn of 1738 on the occasion of a first visit to Italy, 
In that year died the nonagenarian Antonius Stradivarius, the greatest violin-maker the world has ever seen. After Stradivarius's death, the stock of fiddles in his shop was sold by auction. Temple happened to be traveling in Cremona at the time with a tutor, and at the auction he bought that very instrument which we afterwards had caused to know so well. A note in his diary gave its cost at four louis, and said that a curious history attached to it, though it was of his golden period and probably the finest instrument he ever made, Stradivarius would never sell it, and it had hung for more than thirty years in his shop. It was said that from some whim, as he lay dying, he had given orders that it should be burnt, but if that were so, the instructions were neglected, and after his death it came under the hammer. Adrian Temple from the first recognized the great value of the instrument. His notes show that he only used it on certain special occasions, and it was no doubt for its better protection that he devised the hidden cupboard where Sir John eventually found it. The later years of Temple's life were spent for the most part in Italy. On the Scoglio di Venere near Naples he built the Villa de Angelis, and there henceforth passed all except the hottest months of the year. Shortly after the completion of the villa, Jocelyn left him suddenly and became a Carthusian monk. A caustic note in his diary hinted that even this foul parasite was shocked into the austerest form of religion by something he had seen going forward. At Naples, Temple's dark life became still darker. He dallied, it is true, with Neoplatonism, and boasts that he, like Plotinus, had twice passed the circle of the new and enjoyed the fruition of the deity. But the ideals of even that easy doctrine grew in his evil life still more miserably debased. More than once in the manuscript he made mention by name of the Gagliarda of Graziani as having been played at pagan mysteries which these enthusiasts revived at Naples, and the air had evidently impressed itself deeply on his memory. The last entry in his diary is made on the 16th of December, 1752. He was then in Oxford for a few days, but shortly afterwards returned to Naples. The accident of his having just completed a second volume induced him, no doubt, to leave it behind him in the secret cupboard. It is probable that he commenced a third, but if so it was never found. In reading the manuscript I was struck with the author's clear and easy style, and found the interest of the narrative increase rather than diminish. At the same time its study was inexpressibly painful to me. Nothing could have supported me in my determination to thoroughly master it but the conviction that if I was to be of any real assistance to my poor friend Maltravers I must know as far as possible every circumstance connected with his malady. As it was, I felt myself breathing an atmosphere of moral contagion during the perusal of the manuscript, and certain passages have since returned at times to haunt me in spite of all efforts to dislodge them from my memory. When I came to Worth, at Miss Maltruffer's urgent invitation, I found my friend Sir John terribly altered. It was not only that he was ill and physically weak, but he had entirely lost the manner of youth which, though indefinable, is yet so appreciable, and draws so sharp a distinction between the first period of life and middle age. 
but the most striking feature of his illness was the extraordinary pallor of his complexion, which made his face resemble a subtle counterfeit of white wax rather than that of a living man. He welcomed me undemonstratively, but with evident sincerity, and there was an entire absence of the constraint which often accompanies the meeting again of friends whose cordial relations have suffered interruption. From the time of my arrival at Worth until his death, we were constantly together. Indeed, I was much struck by the almost childish dislike which he showed to be left alone even for a few moments. As night approached, this feeling became intensified. Parnham slept always in his master's room, but if anything called the servant away even for a minute, he would send for Carlo Tenuto or myself to be with him until his return. His nerves were weak. He started violently at any unexpected noise, and above all he dreaded being in the dark. When night fell he had additional lamps brought into his room, and even when he composed himself to sleep, insisted on a strong light being kept by his bedside. I had often read in books of people wearing a hunted expression, and had laughed at the phrase as conventional and unmeaning, but when I came to Worth I knew its truth, for if any face ever wore a hunted, I had almost written a haunted look, it was the white face of Sir John Maltravers. His air seemed that of a man who was constantly expecting the arrival of some evil tidings, and at times reminded me painfully of the guilty expectation of a felon who knows that a warrant is issued for his arrest. During my visit he spoke to me frequently about his past life, and instead of showing any reluctance to discuss the subject, seemed glad of the opportunity of disburdening his mind. I gathered from him that the reading of Adrian Temple's memoirs had made a deep impression on his mind, which was no doubt intensified by the vision which he thought he saw in his rooms at Oxford, and by the discovery of the portrait at Royston. Of those singular phenomena I have no explanation to offer. The romantic element in his disposition rendered him peculiarly susceptible to the fascination of that mysticism which breathed through Temple's narrative. He told me that almost from the first time he read it he was filled with a longing to visit the places and to revive the strange life of which it spoke. This inclination he kept at first in check, but by degrees it gathered strength enough to master him. There is no doubt in my mind that the music of the Gagliarda of Graziana helped materially in this process of mental degradation. It is curious that Michael Praetorius in the Syntagma Musicum should speak of the Galliard generally as an invention of the devil, full of shameful and licentious gestures and immodest movements, and the singular melody of the Gagliarda in the Areopagita suite certainly exercised from the first a strange influence over me. I shall not do more than touch on the question here, because I see Miss Maltravers has spoken of it at length, and will only say that though since the day of Sir John's death I have never heard a note of it, the air is still fresh in my mind, and has at times presented itself to me unexpectedly, and always with an unwholesome effect. This I have found happen generally in times of physical depression and the same air no doubt exerted a similar influence on sir john which his impressionable nature rendered from the first more deleterious to him i say this advisedly because i am sure that if some music is good for man and elevates him 
other melodies are equally bad and enervating. An experience far wider than any we yet possess is necessary to enable us to say how far this influence is capable of extension, how far, that is, the mind may be directed on the one hand to ascetic abnegation by the systematic use of certain music, or on the other to illicit and dangerous pleasures by melodies of an opposite tendency. But this much is, I think, certain, that after a comparatively advanced standard of culture has once been attained, music is the readiest if not the only key which admits to the yet narrower circle of the highest imaginative thought on the occasion for travel afforded him by his honeymoon an impulse which he could not at the time explain but which after events have convinced me was the haunting suggestion of the gagliarda drove him to visit the scenes mentioned so often in temple's diary he had always been an excellent scholar and a classic of more than ordinary ability. Rome and southern Italy filled him with a strange delight. His education enabled him to appreciate to the full what he saw. He peopled the stage with the figures of the original actors, and tried to assimilate his thought to theirs. He began reading classical literature widely, no longer from the scholarly, but the literary standpoint. In Rome he spent much time in the librarian's shop, and there met with copies of the numerous authors of the later empire and of those alexandrine philosophers which are rarely seen in england in these he found a new delight and fresh food for his mysticism such study if carried to any extent is probably dangerous to the english character and certainly was to a man of maltravers romantic sympathies this reading produced in time so real an effect upon his mind that if he did not definitely abandon Christianity, as I fear he did, he at least adulterated it with other doctrines, till it became to him Neoplatonism, that most seductive of philosophies which has enthralled so many minds from Proclus and Julian to Augustine and the Renaissances, found an easy convert in John Maltravers. Its passionate longing for the vague and undefined good, its tolerance of aesthetic impressions, the pleasant superstitions of its dynamic pantheism all touched responsive chords in his nature his mind he told me became filled with a measureless yearning for the old culture of pagan philosophy and as the past became clearer and more real so the present grew dimmer and his thoughts were gradually weaned entirely from all the natural objects of affection and interest which should otherwise have occupied them to what a terrible extent this process went on, Miss Maltravers' narrative shows. Soon after reaching Naples he visited the Villa de Angelis, which Temple had built on the ruins of a sea-house of Pomponius. The latter building had in its turn become dismantled and ruinous, and Sir John found no difficulty in buying the site outright. He afterwards rebuilt it on an elaborate scale endeavoring to reproduce in its equipment the luxury of the later empire. I had occasion to visit the house more than once in my capacity of executor, and found it full of priceless works of art, which, though neither so difficult to procure at that time, nor so costly as they would be now, were yet sufficiently valuable to have necessitated an unjustifiable outlay. The situation of the building fostered his infatuation for the past. It lay between the Bay of Naples and the Bay of Baia, 
and from its windows commanded the same exquisite view which had charmed Cicero and Lucullus, Severus and the Antonines. Hard by stood Baia, the princely seaside resort of the empire. That most luxurious and wanton of all cities of antiquity survived the cataclysms of ages, and only lost its civic continuity and became the ruined village of to-day in the sack of the fifteenth century. But a continuity of wickedness is not so easily broken, and those who know the spot best say that it is still instinct with memories of a shameful past. For miles along that haunted coast the foot cannot be put down except on the ruins of some splendid villa, and over all there broods a spirit of corruption and debasement actually sensible and oppressive. Of the dawns and sunsets of the noonday sun tempered by the sea-breeze and the shade of scented groves, those who have been there know the charm, and to those who have not, no words can describe it. But there are malefic vapors rising from the corpse of a past, not altogether buried, and most cultivated Englishmen who tarry there long feel their influence as did John Maltravers. Like so many decepti deceptoris of the Neoplatonic school, he did not practice the abnegation enjoined by the very cult he professed to follow. Though his nature was far too refined, I believe ever to sink into the sensualism revealed in Temple's diaries, yet it was through the gratification of corporeal tastes that he endeavored to achieve the divine ecstasis and there were constantly lavish and sumptuous entertainments at the villa at which strange guests were present in such a nightmare of a life it was not to be expected that any mind would find repose and maltravers certainly found none all those cares which usually occupy men's minds all thoughts of wife child and home were it is true abandoned but a wild unrest had hold of him and never suffered him to be at ease. Though he never told me as much, yet I believe he was under the impression that the form which he had seen at Oxford and Royston had reappeared to him on more than one subsequent occasion. It must have been, I fancy, with a vague hope of laying this spectre, that he now set himself with eagerness to discover where or how Temple had died. He remembered that Royston tradition said he had succumbed at Naples in the plague of 1752, but an idea seized him that this was not the case. Indeed, I half suspect his fancy unconsciously pictured that evil man as still alive. The methods by which he eventually discovered the skeleton, or learned the episodes which preceded Temple's death, I do not know. He promised to tell me some day at length, but a sudden death prevented his ever doing so. The facts, as he narrated them, and as I have little doubt they actually occurred, were these. Adrian Temple, after Jocelyn's departure, had made a confidant of one Palamede Domice Calavi, a scion of a splendid Parthenopian family of that name. Palamede had a palace in the heart of Naples, and was Temple's equal in age and also in his great wealth. The two men became boon companions, associated in all kinds of wickedness and excess. At length Palamede married a beautiful girl named Olympia Aldobrandini, who was also of the noblest lineage. 
but the intimacy between him and Temple was not interrupted. About a year subsequent to this marriage, dancing was going on after a splendid banquet in the great hall of the Palazzo Domacavalli. Adrian, who was a favored guest, called to the musicians in the gallery to play the Ari Pegita suite, and danced it with Olympia, the wife of his host. The Gagliarda was reached, but never finished, for near the end of the second movement Palamede from behind drove a stiletto into his friend's heart. He had found out that day that Adrian had not spared even Olympia's honor. I have endeavored to condense into a connected story the facts learned piecemeal from Sir John in conversation. To a certain extent they supplied, if not an explanation, at least an account of the change that had come over my friend but only to a certain extent. There the explanation broke down, and I was left baffled. I could imagine that a life of unwholesome surroundings and disordered studies might in time produce such a loss of mental tone as would lead in turn to moral achalasia, sensual excess and physical ruin. But in Sir John's case the cause was not adequate. He had, so far as I know, never wholly given the reins to sensuality, and the change was too abrupt and the breakdown of body and mind too complete to be accounted for by such events as those of which he had spoken i had too an uneasy feeling which grew upon me the more i saw of him that while he spoke freely enough on certain topics and obviously meant to give a complete history of his past life there was in reality something in the background which he always kept from my view he was, it seemed, like a young man asked by an indulgent father to disclose his debts in order that they may be discharged, who, although he knows his parents' leniency, and that any debt not now disclosed will be afterwards, but a weight upon his own neck, yet hesitates for very shame to tell the full amount, and keeps some items back. So poor Sir John kept something back from me, his friend, whose only aim was to afford him consolation and relief, and whose compassion would have made me listen without rebuke to the narration of the blackest crimes. I cannot say how much this conviction grieved me. I would most willingly have given my all, my very life, to save my friend and Miss Maltravers' brother, but my efforts were paralyzed by the feeling that I did not know what I had to combat, that some evil influence was at work on him which continually evaded my grasp. Once or twice it seemed as though he were within an ace of telling me all. Once or twice I believe he had definitely made up his mind to do so. But then the mood changed, or more probably his courage failed him. It was on one of these occasions that he asked me somewhat suddenly whether I thought that a man could by any conscious act committed in the flesh take away from himself all possibility of repentance and ultimate salvation. Though I trust a sincere Christian, I am nothing of a theologian, and the question touching on a topic which had not occurred to my mind since childhood, and which seemed to savor rather of medieval romance than of practical religion, took me for a moment aback. I hesitated for an instant, and then replied that the means of salvation offered man were undoubtedly so sufficient as to remove from one truly penitent the guilt of any crime, however dark. My hesitation had been but momentary, but Sir John seemed to have noticed it, and sealed his lips to any confession, if he had indeed intended to make any, by changing the subject abruptly. 
This question naturally gave me food for serious reflection and anxiety. It was the first occasion on which he appeared to me to be undoubtedly suffering from definite hallucination, and I was aware that any illusions connected with religion are generally most difficult to remove. At the same time, anything of this sort was the more remarkable in Sir John's case, as he had, so far as I knew, for a considerable time entirely abandoned the Christian belief, unable to elicit any further information from him, and being thus thrown entirely upon my own resources, I determined that I would read through again the whole of Temple's diaries. The task was a very distasteful one, as I have already explained, but I hoped that a second reading might perhaps throw some light on the dark misgivings that was troubling Sir John. I read the manuscript again with the closest attention. Nothing, however, of any importance seemed to have escaped me on the former occasions, and I had reached nearly the end of the second volume when a comparatively slight matter arrested my attention. I have said that the pages were all carefully numbered, and the events of each day recorded separately. Even where Temple had found nothing of moment to notice on a given day, he had still inserted the date with the word nil written against it. But as I sat one evening in the library at Worth after Sir John had gone to bed, and was finally glancing through the days of the months in Temple's diary to make sure that all were complete, I found one day missing. It was towards the end of the second volume, and the day was the 23rd of October in the year 1752. A glance at the numbering of the pages revealed the fact that three leaves had been entirely removed, and that the pages numbered 349 to 354 were not to be found. Again I ran through the diaries to see whether there were any leaves removed in other places, but found no other single page missing. All was complete, except at this one place, the manuscript beautifully written, with scarcely an error or erasure throughout. A closer examination showed that these leaves had been cut out close to the back, and the cut edges of the paper appeared too fresh to admit of this being done a century ago. A very short reflection convinced me, in fact, that the excision was not likely to have been Temple's, and that it must have been made by Sir John. My first intention was to ask him at once what the lost pages had contained, and why they had been cut out. The matter might be a mere triviality which he could explain in a moment, but on softly opening his bedroom door I found him sleeping, and Parnham, whom the strong light always burnt in the room rendered more wakeful, informed me that his master had been in a deep sleep for more than an hour. I knew how sorely his wasted energies needed such repose, and stepped back to the library without awakening him. A few minutes before I had been feeling sleepy at the conclusion of my task, but now all wish for sleep was suddenly banished, and a painful wakefulness took its place. I was under a species of mental excitement which reminded me of my feelings some years before at Oxford on the first occasion of our ever playing the Gagliarda together, and an idea struck me with a force of intuition that in these three lost leaves lay the secret of my friend's ruin. I turned to the context to see whether there was anything in the entries preceding or following the lacuna that would afford a clue to the missing passage. The record of the few days immediately preceding the 23rd of October was short, and contained nothing of any moment whatever. 
Adrian and Jocelyn were alone together at the Villa de Angelis. The entry on the 22nd was very unimportant and apparently quite complete, ending at the bottom of page 348. Of the 23rd there was, as I have said, no record at all, and the entry for the 24th began at the top of page 355. This last memorandum was also brief, and written when the author was annoyed by Jocelyn leaving him. The defection of his companion had been apparently entirely unexpected. There was at least no previous hint of any such intention. Temple wrote that Jocelyn had left the Villa de Angelis that day and taken up his abode with the Carthusians of San Martino. No reason for such an extraordinary change was given, but there was a hint that Jocelyn had professed himself shocked at something that had happened. The entry concluded with a few bitter remarks. Quote, so farewell to my holy anchoret, and if I cannot speed him with a leprosy as one Elisha did his servant, yet at least he went out from my presence with a face as white as snow. Unquote. I had read this sentence more than once before without its attracting other than a passing attention. The curious expression that Jocelyn had gone out from his presence with a face as white as snow had hitherto seemed to me to mean nothing more than that the two men had parted in violent anger, and that Temple had abused or bullied his companion. But as I sat alone that night in the library, the words seemed to assume an entirely new force and a strange suspicion began to creep over me. I have said that one of the most remarkable features of Sir John's illness was his deadly pallor. Though I had now spent some time at Worth, and had been daily struck by this lack of color, I had never before remembered in this connection that a strange paleness had also been an attribute of Adrian Temple, and was indeed very clearly marked in the picture painted of him by Batoni. In Sir John's account, moreover, of the vision which he thought he had seen in his rooms at Oxford, he had always spoken of the white and waxen face of his spectral visitant. The family tradition of Royston said that Temple had lost his color in some deadly magical experiment, and a conviction now flashed upon me that Jocelyn's face, as white as snow, could refer only to this same unnatural pallor, and that he too had been smitten with it as with the mark of the beast. In a drawer of my dispatch-box I kept by me all the letters which the late Lady Maltravers had written home during her ill-fated honeymoon. Miss Maltravers had placed them in my hands in order that I might be acquainted with every fact that could at all elucidate the progress of Sir John's malady. I remembered that in one of these letters mention was made of a sharp attack of fever in Naples, and of her noticing in him for the first time this singular pallor. I found the letter again without difficulty, and read it with a new light. Every line breathed of surprise and alarm. Lady Maltravers feared that her husband was very seriously ill. On the Wednesday, two days before she wrote, he had suffered all day from a strange restlessness, which had increased after they had retired in the evening. He could not sleep, and had dressed again, saying he would walk a little in the night air to compose himself. He had not returned till near six in the morning, and then seemed so exhausted that he had since been confined to his bed. He was terribly pale, and the doctors feared he had been attacked by some strange fever. The date of the letter was the 25th of October, fixing the night of the 23rd as the time of Sir John's first attack. 
the coincidence of the date with that of the day missing in temple's diary was significant but it was not needed now to convince me that sir john's ruin was due to something that occurred on that fatal night at naples the question that dr frobisher had asked miss maltravers when he was first called to see her brother in london returned to my memory with an overwhelming force had sir john been subjected to any mental shock had he received any severe fright i knew now that the question should have been answered in the affirmative for i felt as certain as if sir john had told me himself that he had received a violent shock probably some terrible fright on the night of the twenty-third of october what the nature of that shock could have been my imagination was powerless to conceive only i knew that whatever sir john had done or seen adrian temple and jocelyn had done or seen also a century before and at the same place that horror which had blanched the face of all three men for life had fallen perhaps with a less overwhelming force on temple's seasoned wickedness but had driven the worthless jocelyn to the cloister and was driving sir john to the grave these thoughts as they passed through my mind filled me with a vague alarm the lateness of the hour the stillness and the subdued light made the library in which i sat seem so vast and lonely that i began to feel the same dread of being alone that i had observed so often in my friend though only a door separated me from his bedroom and i could hear his deep and regular breathing I felt as though I must go in and waken him, or Parnham, to keep me company and save me from my own reflections. By a strong effort I restrained myself and sat down to think the matter over and endeavor to frame some hypothesis that might explain the mystery. But it was all to no purpose. I merely wearied myself without being able to arrive at even a plausible conjecture except that it seemed as though the strange coincidence of date might point to some ghastly charm or incantation which could only be carried out on one certain night of the year it must have been near morning when quite exhausted i fell into an uneasy slumber in the armchair where i sat my sleep however brief was peopled with a succession of fantastic visions in which i continually saw sir john not ill and wasted as now but vigorous and handsome as i had known him at oxford standing beside a glowing brazier and reciting words i could not understand while another man with a sneering white face sat in a corner playing the air of the gagliarda on a violin parnham woke me in my chair at seven o'clock his master he said was still sleeping easily I made up my mind that as soon as he awoke I would inquire of Sir John as to the pages missing from the diary, but though my expectation and excitement were at a high pitch, I was forced to restrain my curiosity, for Sir John's slumber continued late into the day. Dr. Bruton called in the morning and said that this sleep was what the patient's condition most required and was a distinctly favorable symptom. He was on no account to be disturbed sir john did not leave his bed but continued dozing all day till the evening when at last he shook off his drowsiness the hour was already so late that in spite of my anxiety i hesitated to talk with him about the diaries lest i should unduly excite him before the night as the evening advanced he became very uneasy and rose more than once from his bed this restlessness following on the repose of the day ought perhaps to have made me anxious 
for I have since observed that when death is very near, an apprehensive unrest often sets in both with men and animals. It seems as if they dreaded to resign themselves to sleep, lest as they slumber the last enemy should seize them unawares. They try to fling off the bedclothes. They sometimes must leave their beds and walk. So it was with poor John Maltravers on his last Christmas Eve. I had sat with him grieving for his disquiet until he seemed to grow more tranquil, and at length fell asleep. I was sleeping that night in his room instead of Parnham, and tired with sitting up through the previous night, I flung myself dressed as I was upon the bed. I had scarcely dozed off, I think, before the sound of his violin awoke me. I found he had risen from his bed, had taken his favorite instrument, and was playing in his sleep. The air was the Gagliarda of the Arapagita suite, which I had not heard since we had played it last together at Oxford. And it brought back with it a crowd of far-off memories and infinite regrets. I cursed the sleepiness which had overcome me at my watchman's post, and allowed Sir John to play once more that melody which had always been fraught with such evil for him, and I was about to wake him gently when he was startled from sleep by a strange accident. As I walked towards him the violin seemed entirely to collapse in his hands, and as a matter of fact the belly then gave way and broke under the strain of the strings. As the strings slackened the last note became an unearthly discord. If I were superstitious, I should say that some evil spirit then went out of the violin, and broke in his parting throes the wooden tabernacle which had so long sheltered him. It was the last time the instrument was ever used, and that hideous chord was the last that Maltravers ever played. I had feared that the shock of waking thus suddenly from sleep would have a very prejudicial effect upon the sleepwalker, but this seemed not to be the case. I persuaded him to go back at once to bed, and in a few minutes he fell asleep again. In the morning he seemed for the first time distinctly better. There was indeed something of his old self in his manner. It seemed as though the breaking of the violin had been an actual relief to him, and I believe that on that Christmas morning his better instincts woke, and that his old religious training and the associations of his boyhood then made their last appeal. I was pleased at such a change, however temporary it might prove. He wished to go to church, and I determined that again I would subdue my curiosity and defer the questions I was burning to put till after our return from the morning service. Miss Maltravers had gone indoors to make some preparations. Sir John was in his wheelchair on the terrace, and I was sitting by him in the sun. For a few moments he appeared immersed in silent thought, and then bent over towards me till his head was close to mine, and said, "'Dear William, there is something I must tell you. I feel I cannot even go to church till I have told you all.' His manner shocked me beyond expression. I knew that he was going to tell me the secret of the lost pages, but instead of wishing any longer to have my curiosity satisfied, I felt a horrible dread of what he might say next. He took my hand in his and held it tightly, as a man who was about to undergo severe physical pain and sought the consolation of a friend's support. Then he went on, "'You will be shocked at what I am going to tell you, but listen and do not give me up. You must stand by me and comfort me and help me to turn again.' 
He paused for a moment and continued. It was one night in October, when Constance and I were at Naples. I took that violin and went by myself to the ruined villa on the Scoglio di Vinere. He had been speaking with difficulty. His hand clutched mine convulsively, but still I felt it trembling, and I could see the moisture standing thick on his forehead. At this point the effort seemed too much for him, and he broke off. I cannot go on. I cannot tell you. But you can read it for yourself. In that diary which I gave you there are some pages missing. The suspense was becoming intolerable to me, and I broke in. Yes, yes, I know. You cut them out. Tell me where they are. He went on. Yes, I cut them out, lest they should possibly fall into anyone's hands unaware. But before you read them, you must swear, as you hope for salvation, that you will never try to do what is written in them. Swear this to me now, or I never can let you see them. My eagerness was too great to stop now to discuss trifles, and to humor him I swore as desired. He had been speaking with a continual increasing effort. He cast a hurried and fearful glance round as though he expected to see someone listening, and it was almost in a whisper that he went on. You will find them in... His agitation had become most painful to watch, and as he spoke the last words a convulsion passed over his face, and speech failing him he sank back on his pillow. A strange fear took hold of me. For a moment I thought there were others on the terrace beside myself, and turned round expecting to see Miss Maltravers returned, but we were still alone. I even fancied that just as Sir John spoke his last words, I felt something brush swiftly by me. He put up his hands, beating the air with a most painful gesture, as though he were trying to keep off an antagonist who had gripped him by the throat, and made a final struggle to speak. But the spasm was too strong for him. A dreadful stillness followed and he was gone. There is little more to add, for Sir John's guilty secret perished with him. Though I was sure from his manner that the missing leaves were concealed somewhere at Worth, and though as executor I caused the most diligent search to be made, no trace of them was afterwards found, nor did any circumstance ever transpire to fling further light upon the matter. I must confess that I should have felt the discovery of these pages as a relief, for though I dreaded what I might have had to read, yet I was more anxious lest being found at a later period, and falling into other hands, they should cause a recrudescence of that plague which had blighted Sir John's life. Of the nature of the events which took place on that night at Naples I can form no conjecture. But as certain physical sights of air now proved so revolting as to unhinge the intellect, so I can imagine that the mind may, in a state of extreme tension, conjure up to itself some form of moral evil so hideous as metaphysically to sear it. And this, I believe, happened in the case of both Adrian Temple and of Sir John Maltravers. It is difficult to imagine the accessories used to produce the mental excitation in which alone such a presentment of evil could become imaginable. 
fancy and legend which have combined to represent as possible appearances of the supernatural agree also in considering them as more likely to occur at certain times and places than at others and it is possible that the missing pages of the diary contained an account of the time place and other conditions chosen by temple for some deadly experiment sir john most probably reenacted the scene under precisely similar conditions and the effect on his overwrought imagination was so vivid as to upset the balance of his mind. The time chosen was no doubt the night of the 23rd of October, and I cannot help thinking that the place was one of those evil-looking and ruinous sea-rooms which had so terrifying an effect on Miss Maltravers. Temple may have used on that night one of the medieval incantations, or possibly the more ancient invocation of the Isaac rite, with which a man of his knowledge and proclivities would certainly be familiar. The accessories of either are sufficiently hideous to weaken the mind by terror, and so prepare it for a belief in some frightful apparition. But whatever was done, I feel sure that the music of the Gagliarda formed part of the ceremonial. Medieval philosophers and theologians held that evil is in its essence so horrible that the human mind, if it could realize it, must perish at its contemplation. Such realization was by mercy ordinarily withheld, but its possibility was hinted in the legend of the Visio Malefica. The Visio Beatifica was, as is well known, that vision of the deity or realization of the perfect good which was to form the happiness of heaven and the reward of the sanctified in the next world tradition says that this vision was accorded also to some specially elect spirits even in this life as to enoch elijah stephen and jerome but there was a converse to the beatific vision in the visio malefica or presentation of absolute evil which was to be the chief torture of the damned and which like the beatific vision had been made visible in life to certain desperate men it visited esau as was said when he found no place for repentance and judas whom it drove to suicide cain saw it when he murdered his brother and legend relates that in his case and in that of others it left a physical brand to be borne by the body to the grave it was supposed that the malefic vision besides being thus spontaneously presented to typically abandoned men had actually been purposely called up by some few great adepts and used by them to blast their enemies but to do so was considered equivalent to a conscious surrender to the powers of evil as the vision once seen took away all hope of final salvation adrian temple would undoubtedly be cognizant of this legend and the lost experiment may have been an attempt to call up the malefic vision. It is but a vague conjecture at the best, for the tree of the knowledge of evil bears many sorts of poisonous fruit, and no one can give full account of the extravagances of a wayward fancy. Conjointly with Miss Sophia, Sir John appointed me his executor and guardian of his only son. Two months later we had lit a great fire in the library at Worth, in it after the servants were gone to bed we burnt the book containing the arapagita of grazioni and the stradivarius fiddle the diaries of temple i had already destroyed and wished that i could as easily blot out their foul and debasing memories from my mind 
I shall probably be blamed by those who would exalt art at the expense of everything else for burning a unique violin. This reproach I am content to bear. Though I am not unreasonably superstitious and have no sympathy for that potential pantheism to which Sir John Maltravers surrendered his intellect, yet I felt so great an aversion to this violin that I would neither suffer it to remain at worth nor pass into other hands. Miss Sophia was entirely at one with me on this point. It was the same feeling which restrains any except fools or braggarts from wishing to sleep in haunted rooms or to live in houses polluted with the memory of a revolting crime. No sane mind believes in foolish apparitions, but fancy may at times bewitch the best of us. So the Stradivarius was burnt. It was, after all, perhaps not so serious a matter, for, as I have said, the base bar had given way. There had always been a question whether it was strong enough to resist the strain of modern stringing. Experience showed at last that it was not. With the failure of the base bar the belly collapsed, and the wood broke across the grain in so extraordinary a manner as to put the fiddle beyond repair except as a curiosity. Its loss, therefore, is not to be so much regretted. Sir Edward has been brought up to think more of a cricket bat than of a violin bow, but if he wishes at any time to buy a Stradivarius, the fortunes of Worth and Royston, nursed through two long minorities, will certainly justify his doing so. Miss Sophia and I stood by and watched the Holocaust. My heart misgave me for a moment when I saw the mellow red varnish blistering off the back, but I put my regret resolutely aside. As the bright flames jumped up and lapped it round, they flung a red glow on the scroll. It was wonderfully wrought, and differed, as I think Miss Maltravers has already said, from any known example of Stradivarius. As we watched it, the scroll took form, and we saw what we had never seen before, that it was cut so that the deep lines in a certain light showed as the profile of a man. It was a wizened little paganish face, with sharp-cut features and a bald head. As I looked at it, I knew at once, and a cameo has since confirmed the fact, that it was a head of porphyry. Thus the second label found in the violin was explained, and Sir John's view confirmed that Stradivarius had made the instrument for some Neoplatonist enthusiast who had dedicated it to his master, Porphyrius. A year after Sir John's death, I went with Miss Maltravers to Worth Church to see a plain slab of slate which we had placed over her brother's grave. We stood in bright sunlight in the Maltravers Chapel, with the monuments of that splendid family about us. Among them were the altar-tomb of Sir Esmond, and the effigies of more than one crusader. As I looked on their knightly forms, with their heads resting on their tilting helms, their faces set firm and their hands joined in prayer, I could not help envying them that full and unwavering faith for which they had fought and died. It seemed to stand out in such sharp contrast with our latter-day sciolism and half-believed creeds, and to be flung into higher relief by the dark shadow of John Maltravers' ruined life. At our feet was the great brass of one Sir Roger de Maltravers. I pointed out the end of the inscription to my companion, Curius animae atque animabus omnium fidelium defunctorium atque nostris animabus 
cum ex hoc luca transuerimus propitiatur deus though no catholic i could not refuse to add a sincere amen miss sophia who is not ignorant of latin read the inscription after me ex hoc luca she said as though speaking to herself out of this light alas alas for some the light is darkness End of Mr. Gaskell's Note End of The Lost Stradivarius by John Meade Faulkner